Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 239 for March 11th, 2010. Stacks, registers, and recursion. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssistExpress, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssistExpress. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by Astaro. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection, contact Astaro at astaro.com. Or call 877-4ASTARO for a free trial of an Astaro Security Gateway appliance in your business. And by the new Carbonite Pro. It's simple, secure, and affordable online backup for your small business. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all the things you need to know about keeping yourself safe online. Security privacy, spyware and viruses, and lately, uh, kind of a fundamental education in the way computers work. Here he is, the star of our show, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hey, Leo, I ran across a new term in the security um, terrain this week. Um, We now have a a new term that's come into uh, sort of a new term of art in security, weaponized email. Oh, dear. That doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> yeah, so, Weaponized uh, anything's bad, but weaponized email. Oy. Weaponized email. So we'll be talking about that as uh, part of our security news. And then uh, talking, uh, continuing our journey through the how computers actually work down in the basement. Um, talking about stacks, registers, and recursion this oh, week. Oh, good. Well, good all three stuff. together, huh? Because I thought maybe we'd take one at a time. Well, um we need to. Uh, I've been wanting to introduce the notion of multiple registers, and I want to kind of hold people in this awareness that it's all about bits in the machine language. So, and and registers are often being stored and saved on the stack, which right. is an important use for it. So, I thought, well, I really can't talk about the stack meaningfully until we have that. We need. I need to talk about registers anyway. And then I was noticing that. Um, uh, there have been many people talking about all of the pads that are coming out, like the you know you know following the Apple iPad announcement and how they're all oh, ARM a million based. Of them. Yeah, and uh, and there's a reason why everyone is choosing ARM processors. And so one of the cool things is, as a result of having laid this foundation of understanding, we'll be able to 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 really grok. Um, risk and CISC and power consumption and these these you know things that really shape our world of computing. Good, and yeah, they all do go together, don't they? Yep. If you it's think you can do it in one piece, more power to you, Mister <laughs> G. Hey, before we get into that, and I know we have some security news and uh, a rat. Ooh, lot, lots of really fun, interesting stuff this yeah. week. Yes, yeah, we had a Patch Tuesday, didn't we? 
snuck right yep. by me. Although that was not, it was sort of an anticlimactic Patch Tuesday, but lots of other goodies. We'll get to it in just a moment. But first, I do want to mention our friends at Citrix, the folks who do uh, that great go-to-assist product. You know, I think Citrix realizes that the kind of people who listen to this show are the kind of people, friends, family, uh, neighbors, strangers ask for tech support. And, of course, many of you work in IT uh, or you're support professionals or, like Steve, you have software that you support. GoToAssist is made for those people, for you people, for us. I use it all the time. In fact, we first started using GoToAssist in the screensavers days. We tried it out. We thought it would be kind of fun to be able to do the TV show and, like, help somebody literally by going into their computer. Well, since then, it's become better and better and better. And now it is easily the premier remote uh, software support package out there. Instant tech support. Turns you into a tech support hero. It, let me, I mean, just a few of the features. Of course, it's 128-bit SSL encryption, so it's secure. Uh, very easy. You don't, your, your client or, or uh, you know, victim doesn't have to have it installed ahead of time. Uh, all you do is you send them a link uh, or even tell them, go to, go to Assist and, and download the software. You get on their system, and now you can do anything. You can even see what's running, like operating system, background software, security software. You can copy files from yours to the, your machine to theirs, like a patch, you know, malware bytes or whatever. You can even, while one scan is running on one machine, open another and another and another, other, up to eight sessions simultaneously. Um, I mean, this is just fantastic stuff. It's fast. It's easy. Your customers will like it. You'll like it. By the way, PC or Mac, um, all of this, all of the Citrix stuff now is going cross-platform, which I think is fantastic. I want you to try it free. I think this is the best part about it, is you can get 30 days free by going to gotoassist.com slash security, G-O-T-O, assist.com slash security. Um, just download it, install it right there, 30 days free. They do have day passes down the road if you decide to buy, or you can get the monthly pass. And I think those of you who work in the business are going to want the monthly pass. Very affordable and very effective. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support for security now. All right, Steve, let's well, talk so patches. The, the probably the least um, interesting uh, little tidbit of security news this week is Microsoft's second Tuesday of the month. They didn't have... They did. They, they did. They didn't have a completely dead month, but nothing really very exciting. That's good. Um, that's well. That's yes. what you want. Um, we last second Tuesday of the month. Our listeners will remember that one of the patches that Microsoft released was inexplicably crashing machines with the blue screen of death problem, which it turned out was related to people having a Trojan installed on their machine which was which was misbehaving because Microsoft's patch changed the structure of some of the core kernel files which changed the the locations of jump points and structures in memory which the trojan had been written to in sort of a hard coded fashion so when when the update was applied these these critical locations changed. When you rebooted your machine, the the new kernel components were loaded in memory. Then the rootkit that was hiding also in the machine would come in and attempt to install itself. But because these core structures had changed, its modifications to the kernel caused the system to crash. So one of the things Microsoft did this month is update last month's patch to <laughs> check for the rootkit. 
Great. And and it will no longer install itself if you've already been infected and you might as well just give up and go home. Um, actually, <laughs> the MSRT, Microsoft Software Removal Tool, has also been updated for awareness of this. So it will catch it and remove it from your system. And then last month's patch can be installed without crashing your system, which is a good thing. Um, and then there were just two... It, uh, updates, neither of which were critical in Microsoft's, you know, severity ranking scale. Uh, they were just ranked as important. Uh, Windows Movie Maker, um, which it, not Live Movie Maker, which is in, in Vista and Windows 7, but the Movie Maker, which was in earlier versions of Windows, and Microsoft Producer 2003 were both found to have a an exploitable problem such that if somebody could induce you to open a Windows Movie Maker or a Microsoft Producer 2003 project file, that could cause your machine to run code of their design. I'm not sure why they didn't consider this critical. Maybe we're, we're just sort of, there's so many things that are really bad now that something that's just bad uh, no longer rates critical. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just because these are sort of obscure, you know, obscure things. Uh, it's like great escalation. Exactly. <laughs> it's just creeping up. Exactly. Ah, that's not so bad. We're yeah. used to that. And then um, somebody reported seven different vulnerabilities in, in Excel to Microsoft some length of time ago. Lord knows how long ago. But Microsoft has fixed those, and that's the other change which they also ranked as important even though somebody targeting you who sent you an excel spreadsheet and could induce you to open it could potentially um, run their own code in your machine so that's also not good those are fixed and that's pretty much all we had from microsoft for uh this patch tuesday um opera however is not singing right now uh a really bad vulnerability bad in the sense that it's so easy to exploit has been discovered um, and confirmed so uh, opera's own advice there's no update for it as of the date of our recording of this podcast which is um, the 10th of march um, and not not certain how soon there will be one um, opera has said that you should enable dep dep for opera which is not enabled by default, but it's not clear that even that would be sufficient. The security industry is just telling people, don't use Opera. It's so until sad. I mean, this just it, came out. Yeah. Um, and w the reason it's disturbing is that the we, we've talked about how the HTTP protocol works with headers, mm -hmm. where the, the query to the server can in can include headers which the user never sees there's they're, they're so-called metadata they're they're not part of the query or in the case of a server's reply they're not actually part of the content being returned but they're they're additional data that helps with the interchange for example there might be an expiration date on the contents so that so that the client is able to cache what it receives without continually asking for it over and over and over until some length of time has passed or some date has passed. So there's like a sort of a, a, a an expiration date on the content. Or 
the content length where the server says, okay, you've asked for JPEG. Um, the, the JPEG itself doesn't specify the length. So a header is added, the so-called content length header, so that the recipient knows how long it's going to be. That's handy, for example, if we want to like a progress bar and the server's downloading something big, if it knows how large it is, it knows how much it's received, so it's able to present the user with a, a valid progress bar saying, okay, we're getting something big here, and this is the percentage of it that we've received. We only, you only know that if you know how long it is overall. So this is useful additional so-called metadata that is received from the server. Well, as it turns out, the specific problem is in, in fact, the content length header. Um, if the content length header is representing a 64-bit quantity and the, the most significant 32 bits have their sign negated so that it looks like a large negative quantity, that trips a buffer overrun. It trips a misbehavior in Opera, which um, is believed to be exploitable. And so the reason this is bad is that it's so easy to do. I mean, this is potentially, you know, you don't need any fancy, mm. you know, uh, content-specific, you know, download this Excel file or download that. Apparently, any web object with a content length that was invalid could trip up Opera. Now, we are currently at Opera version 10.5. That's known to be vulnerable and it's presumed that all previous versions are as well. So Opera users are advised not to use Opera until they've got something past version 10.5. I'm sure the Opera folks are working on fixing it. It should be a trivial fix. I mean, that's on the, the, the downside is that it's so easy. I mean, this is something so intrinsic to the HTTP protocol. But the, the good news is that because it's that way, it ought to be instantaneous to fix. So I think it's just a matter of them not having had a chance yet to respond, maybe even by tomorrow when this podcast goes live, there will be a new one. So mm. if so, uh, it'd be good to fix that. Is, is, are there exploits in the wild? Is it, is it a zero-day exploit or just uh, somebody no. just... No, it was a vulnerability discovered and it's been, it's been confirmed. So, oh, and there's, you know, what I just told our listeners, this is how you do it, is well known, too, on the internet. Everybody knows that, yeah. So so the problem is bad guys with that information will be able to look at the nature of the crash and say, ooh, I know how to execute code with this. So um, now it, it's, it's interesting, too. I'm going to tell a story here at the end of an interesting exploit involving social networking, which is increasingly becoming part of a sort of a multi-phase blended attack. And this notion of, of weaponized email that I mentioned is, is exploited there and used. But remember that it could be that people think, oh, well, you know, Opera only has a couple points of market share, so nobody is going to you know, it's it's unlikely that I'm going to be clicking on a link which is going to take advantage of an obscure opera bug. Except that what we're seeing more and more is that is that exploits 
are no longer being sprayed at random across the internet for these kinds of problems. Instead, the bad guys are targeting specific companies or specific groups or individuals. And for example, if if they knew that a company had standardized on opera and it's it's arguably possible to determine you know, what like web browser oh, technology yeah, you can see. Yeah. company uses. Yes. Yeah, it's easy. Um then the bad guys would go digging around in their opera bag of tricks and say, Oh, look, here was a bad problem in opera. Um, what are the chances that one or more of the people in the company haven't fixed it? Mm. So then they would go about sending email with with links that would launch Opera to open a web page, which would be deliberately crafted to be malicious. So, so I mean, this is it's it's really it, it's come to the to the attention of the security industry, and this was a, a topic in uh, much of RSA's conference last week that that. We're really seeing a transformation in the way vulnerabilities are being exploited in machines. And so it no longer means that really obscure problems aren't something, unfortunately, to be worried about. And it's specifically because they can be so powerful that, you know, every one of them is a potential entry point. Is the problem also that the tools exist for people who are not necessarily so skilled that they could take advantage of this to to take oh, advantage of it? Absolutely. In yeah. fact, I was reading in the last week or two exactly that comment. Um, there were some people editorializing about the, the nature of, of security problems. And one of the things that really upset them was that um, it was, I think it might have been the three guys that were nabbed a week or two ago for running one of the large botnets and in looking at in, in talking to them and at looking at what they were doing to to be running essentially a large multi hundred thousand machine botnet, these guys were not technical. Yeah. I mean they, they weren't capable of writing any of this stuff themselves. They don't have to be. They picked up pieces that were ready made and put them together and and basically were sort of you know, orchestrating other people's code. And so that was a, a serious concern was that it's now no longer, you know, you don't need deep voodoo hacking skills in order to do this. It's becoming more canned, very much like I was talking about Metasploit, that, that right. system, which allows people to, you know, grab these exploits when they're very new and, and see how they run and do them themselves. Yeah. Good news. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of penetration, um, there's been um, news uh, on Aurora. Aurora was the name given to the series of attacks which Google first publicized, but which were actually, uh, as the as the investigation expanded, it looked like it was on the order of 30 or more um, corporations were penetrated. Um, they did trace them back to a couple locations in china um and what they found um mcafee gave a presentation at rsa last week about the aurora attacks and um this is where we were first seeing the the term um people using weaponized email um used to be called spear phishing so what we used to ah. be called we used to be calling spear phishing where you would you would be deliberately aiming 
email at people. We're now calling it weaponized. Mm -hmm. um, what 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 they found was that the Aurora attacks were going after the the penetrated corporations' stores of intellectual property, um, the so-called source code repositories. And so, for example, they found that that Google's source code repository was not adequately secured and that the bad guys were able to get in there and literally browse around. And so through, through email aimed at somebody who had access to it already? Exactly. Okay. So, or, or email, see, this is all sort of incremental. Email aimed at somebody else who might have access to somebody else who had access to it. Uh. I mean, once you're in, then you're able to bounce around until you find what, what you're looking for. Um, you know, and, and able to, to, to see the contents of someone's machine, see who he, he or she, that employee, is corresponding to, um, look at the, their email, say, oh, wait, that looks like, you know, they're writing to a developer to ask them a question about something. Let's, you know, see if we can, you know, trace over to that developer's machine because they'll probably have the access we want. And, of course, you could do three things if you are able to gain access to a company's IP, you know, intellectual property repository. Um, you can download the entire source tree. You can get right access to it and subtly alter existing proven Ooh. source code right. so that future products which are produced using that source code and and remember that i mean products are so large now that i mean it's you know millions of lines of code goes into these products which ends up shipping as megabytes you know tens of megabytes of code that subtle alterations that that were undergoing detected in source code then end up being bundled into future products which are exploitable by those people who made the changes so it's like a way of of, of tricking well-meaning good companies with you know as much integrity as any to shipping trojan horse code trojan horse products that have back doors built into them that nobody but the bad guys who were able to slip in in the dead of night and make some subtle changes to the source code, and then get out unnoticed, um, then this stuff gets compiled and shipped. Right. A lot um, of the... A lot of, I mean, now, I don't know which source code repository you're talking about. If they're talking about Google code, a lot of that's like, um, you know, uh, websites and um, uh, open source projects, things like that. I wonder what they mean when they say the, the database was compromised. Well, and, and not, not just Google, but I mean... Other major corporations, anybody right. who's got intellectual property, apparently there there's a there's a a, a common um, set of um, utilities that they're all using. I'm trying to think of what the name was like per perforce. I think it's perforce is one of the very very popular um, uh, source code management tools. Oh, so it's like a code repository software. I it, get it I exactly. Get it. Source code uh, repository. So okay. so. So developers, well, so so that so one problem, of course, is the repository. The other is that the nature of the way the developers working, they'll often check source code out 
from the source code repository onto their local machine, use it, work with it, make some changes, then check it back in, but it stays on their machine. So it's often the case that you don't even need to get to the source code repository. You can alter the code on a developer's machine. Sure, and then they check it in and boom, you're done. And, and so what was found, and, and this was the gist of McAfee's t- uh, talk, essentially, at, at the RSA conference, was that there's a presumption of trust of the developers, naturally. So, and, and that is sort of extended to a trust of the network. So, for example, they, they, they found that there's no security in, in like, like endpoint security, no SSL encryption being used in the source code repositories when they connect to developers. So all the standard problems of lack of SSL apply. Now you think, well, wait a minute. We don't need SSL. It's our intranet. Except that when you've got bad guys occupying nodes of your intranet, now it's like the internet where you really do need to worry about point-to-point security, even within your own corporation. So this this whole, this sort of, this this transformation changes this notion of, of the security boundaries. And so once upon a time, a corporation could feel comfortable with a firewall that isolated their intranet from the external public internet. And they'd have their filters up and they'd have all their, their ports closed unless they were using them and, and say, okay, now we're safe. But this, this whole next generation of, of weaponized email is a way of, of, for the bad guys, penetrating that through, you know, through something as what, what used to be as benign as email, getting into the corporation behind those barriers and, and setting up camp. Wow, and that's what Aurora did. That's what, what you know. It happened to a, a bunch of companies. Um, there was another re- interesting report. We talked about uh, Secunia um, quite a while ago. They had their uh, their personal software inspector PSI, which right, is a really right. cool free download. Which which um, I know a lot of our listeners grabbed, downloaded, and you, you run it on your system. Basically, it does an inventory of all the software that you've got installed and then checks the version of the software versus the most recent version to let you know with a very nice and friendly user interface if you've got stuff that's that's got known vulnerabilities that you should update. Well, thanks to their doing that, they've been able to accumulate a substantial database of the state of software in the machines of the population, which is many, that ran this free PSI tool. Right. Now, I presume that they told people they were doing that. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, and so uh, uh, Greg uh, Kaiser, who reports for Computer World, um, uh, reported on a Secunia study which s- said that the typical average computer user is now being subjected to 75 patch events per year. 70, wow. 75. So essentially, a patch event... Six a month. It's every 4.9 days (laughs) is, on average, 
the the typical user needs to do something. And I mean, when you think about it, Leo, I mean, I'm I'm constantly updating all of the software that I use. I mean, it's it's like more or less a continual thing for me. I'm yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I've got a lot of software. And it's it's just creeping forward, you know. I'm I'm checking to see if it's the latest version. Oh, look, there's something new. No surprise. And you download it. And, Is that a bad thing, though? Well, um, uh, the um, this little blurb was covered in a recent Sans security newsletter, and one of their editors, one of the members of the editorial board, Eugene Schultz, he commented. Oh. He said, "Secunia is right." about this being a burden. He said, there are just too many bugs in too many software products. There's no way that the average PC user, let alone the average organization, can even begin to keep up with all the patches. A single patch installation method would help only to some degree. The far bigger problem is software developers continuing to produce bug-infested software with few, if any, negative consequences to them. Because what oh, happened was... You're right, because we don't mind. Oh, yeah, and more updates. Yeah, I mean, maybe... Uh, th- it's good, maybe this, it'll be better. Exactly. There's this sort of this holy grail sense of, well, maybe this will you know, <laughs> make it work better. Um, what happened was that in last year's RSA conference, in the 09 conference, Secunia made a case for it being, it being too burdensome that not only were there 75 patch events... But on average, the software was coming from 22 different organizations, each with their own patching methodology. And so Secunia made a case for an industry, a single industry-wide patching approach, whatever that would be. And they were just blown off. I mean, everyone said, oh, yeah, okay, no, we're going to well, do our Because no, they're never going to agree. I exactly. Mean, it, would, it would have to come from Microsoft probably, right? Have to be OS based. Um, I've noticed that um, one of the installation tools, um, Install Shield, s- seems to be trying to aggregate right. some of that. I've got a, a single instance of Install Shield update and a couple, you know, two or three programs all use Install Shield and Install Shield's update management so it, it it sort of wakes up every couple of weeks and says hey i need to check to see if anything's new it's like oh okay fine you know it's just well again oems what? have done that too i mean you know hp used to run back web on the machine it would automatically download and patch uh, the oh, machine thank i think goodness, that's that, yeah. those days well that's maybe why the industry kind of went eh, because our memory of these unified patch solutions is not so hot yeah yeah so Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting statistic yeah. that that in on general, a little less than one every five days. That's about right. There, and well, and and the point is that you know here we are, we're all geeks and nerds, and and I mean you know we love computers, so we're listening to this podcast. <laughs> but typical users, they just want to use the darn things. Right. They they just I mean they're they're not living for this. This is their worst nightmare, and it creates a a real tension in the consumer's mind. That boy, uh, you know, this thing's working against me. This computer's not my friend. Ah. Ah. Um, I wanted to note that real networks lost definitively their two-year running suit that uh, that the MPAA brought against them. Uh, In a settlement, they finally agreed to 
to give up their battle to pay the MPAA $4.5 million to cover its legal costs, to permanently stop selling the product, and to reimburse the 2,700 owners of Real DVD $30 each. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the Real Network's argument was that all their product, Real DVD, did was allow people who legally owned a DVD to copy it to their computer's hard drive in order to watch it there rather than on uh, a, a DVD player. And the MPAA argued that that was a breach of the DMCA and a breach of the agreement which Real had signed uh, when they obtained the technology to decrypt DVD. So, um, uh, on whatever basis, um, Real said, okay, you know, we're going to take the product off the market. So, Real DVD no longer exists. They gave in on that one. They they could have fought on. Yeah. And I, and I almost wish they had. There's a good uh, guest editorial in Boing Boing saying Real kind of uh, damaged us all by giving up mm. on this one. And if they'd only gone on and maybe it won, uh, which was possible in a trial, that maybe they could have protected this right to copy. Because they did everything yeah. right. You know, they got, you know, anyway. Exactly. They they obtained a license. They yep. were protecting the um, the intellectual property. It was a matter of the MPAA deciding, ah, we don't like that. We don't like any kind of copying under any circumstance. Yep. Yeah. That's too bad. Okay. Are you ready for this, Leo? Yes. The Energizer Bunny. I saw fact- this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And this actually harkens back to your spearfishing story, really. Uh, In a way, right? I don't know how they got infected. but Well, they don't know how they got infected. Right. Okay, so here's the story. The, there is a, a product called from um, uh, the Energizer battery people called uh, the Energizer Duo, which is a USB-powered nickel metal hydride battery recharger and it and the usb interface allows your computer to monitor the charge status of the battery to see how far discharged it is and to watch it over time charge itself up since mid 2007 i think it's may 2007 that software that comes with this energizer duo product has been installing a Trojan mm. in the machines of everyone mm. who used it. Mm. There's a DLL named ARUCER.DLL, which is in the Windows System 32 directory after you install this Energizer Bunny <laughs> Duo software. Boom, 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 boom. It's a Trojan which opens port. Seven 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 seven. He keeps hacking and, and listen, hacking look, and, <laughs> and keeps hacking and hacking and hacking. And it li- it lives in your machine whenever it's running. So uh, they've taken it off the market. Uh, Energizer has uh, anyone uh, within the sound of this podcast who might own the Energizer Duo is advised to uninstall it. Uninstalling it removes it. You can also delete the arucer.dll from your Windows 32 system, your Windows System 32 directory, and that will do the job too. Then reboot your machine, and you'll be okay. And presumably, 
if you if you you opened a DOS box and did a netstat hyphen a n, that would show you uh, the ports that your system is currently has open and enlist as in and is listening on. Um, and if you see seven 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 listed there, uh, that's further confirmation that this little Trojan is set up shop in your machine. The good news is, if you're behind a router, um, it will be protecting you from incoming traffic on that port. So um, anyone who was out there scanning for the Trojan, looking for connections, connectability on port 7777 uh, would not have been able to reach your machine. And as far as I know, this thing does not initiate outbound connections. It just sets up an, a, a listening connection so that if you were not behind a firewall, then uh, you would have probably been discovered and somebody would have taken over your machine. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> now, I loved this story. Um, uh, it appeared in USA Today um, because it gives our listeners a, a real good sense for the kind of technology and the kind of attacks which we're going to see more in the future. Um, and and essentially, in this case, how and why social networking is factoring into attacks increasingly. Um, this is the result of an investigation uh, late last year in 2009 by a network infrastructure provider, Terramark. Um, they just, They researched... And a, t- a successful attack on an unnamed major financial U.S. firm. A, an employee of this unnamed major U.S. financial firm had a Facebook page which got hijacked through a means that was not disclosed. But we've, we've talked about, you know, Facebook hijacking a lot in the past. It turns out it's, it's all too easy to do. So the bad guys got a hold of, got access to this employee's Facebook page. Looking at the page, they saw postings about a recent company picnic. And they saw that this person's Facebook friends were, not surprisingly, other employees in the company. So they sent email as if from this employee to the other employees of the company that were identified through this Facebook page. The email said um, something to the effect of, hey, check out the pictures I took at last weekend's company picnic. So a number of employees received this email, which is on point. It's contextually relevant. It's from, it's, it's from a friend uh, one of their Facebook friends who's an employee of the company, all of it makes sense. Clicking on the link in this one case installed a a um, a, a keystroke logger on the laptop of a female employee who received this email and had every reason to trust it, this so-called weaponized email. So she now had a keystroke logger on her laptop. Subsequently, when roaming outside of the company, she logged in through the company's 
VPN and her login credentials and whatever else was required, like a, a client certificate and so forth, was captured and sent to the bad guys. Oh, wow. Clever. They, yes. They now had the, have the ability and did to log in to the corporate, through the corporate VPN, get into the intranet. They spent two weeks roaming around inside the company and before their presence was detected and had taken control of two of the company's internal servers by that time. So this really happened. That's an amazing hack. This is the way it happened. This is... This is, this is, you know, targeted. And I think what we're going to be seeing more in the future is this kind of vulnerability. You know, I don't know whether, um, where the original impetus came from, whether it was, it was this, this first employee whose, whose Facebook page got hacked. Then they looked to see who he worked for and said, oh, let's go after that company. Or maybe... The, the the initial the, the initial intent was let's go after this company let's see if any of of the company's employees have facebook pages that led them to a collection of facebook pages they were able to get they were able to hijack one facebook page then leverage that in through a, through a series of actions into remote vpn access mm. into that corporate network and you could, it wouldn't be enough to say, oh, we're not going to allow you to use Facebook at work because it was on our laptop at home. Correct. So you'd have to say, as an employee of this company, you may not use Facebook anywhere, anytime. And so what, yeah, and so the, the, way, the way the social networking is factoring into this is for the first time ever, there's a sort of a, a formalized forum for the publication of 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 interrelationships you know right here are all the people i'm facebook friends with right. you're not just giving away your birthday and your weight <laughs> you're saying you're, you're giving somebody your social circle your graph your your social network and and so one of the and so we've seen already and we've talked about this often that it is it is the social engineering which yep. is a continuing problem for security because that just slips under people's radar. It's like, oh, mail from mom. Mom is not going to attack me. So, you know, you know, that's what happened. And so, you know, we're seeing things like, you know, Twitter links being sent where it's like, you know, LOL, is this really you? Question mark. Yeah. And then a link. And so, you know, it's like, oh, who's, you know, if, if this comes from someone you know, and they apparently found something about you on the internet. Is this really you? You're going to be moved to click that in sure. order to find out what it is that that they think they know about you. You know, so, Dvorak's so- Twitter got hacked over the weekend. <laughs> but now he says, he swears, he didn't, oh, no, I didn't do anything. It was a security flaw at Twitter, and other people got hacked as well. And I don't know what the truth is of that matter. But it does make you think, boy, if you really want you really want to be secure you should not be on these networks well i mean it it with it comes some responsibility because social engineering hacks are are able to be blended with these kinds of targeted 
attacks like right. using weaponized email to 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 get underneath people's defenses. I mean, the problem is that 99.999% of the email you receive is fine. You you know, you have habits which generally don't hurt you, but it do, doesn't mean that that 0.001% can't really do some damage through no no malicious intent on either of these employees' part. Bad guys got access to her VPN login credentials and used them to to get access to, you know, inside a corporate intranet. And it, it really happened just this way. I Last night, I'm sitting watching a movie and I hear my wife say... Yes. Uh, no, we have a burglar alarm, but we don't use it. Yes, this, we have the stereo systems in three rooms of the house. Uh, honey, how many square feet is our house? I said, who are you talking to? She said, oh, it's the insurance company. I said, the insurance company called you and they're asking these questions. Yeah. I said, hang up and get a number and call them back. She said, no, no, it's Tanisha. She's fine. So what do you mean? She's a very nice lady. I thought, this is not good. Even my son, Henry, said, Mom, hang up immediately. <laughs> what are you telling? She told him all this stuff. Now, I think it was the insurance company, which makes yes. me think, what the hell are they thinking? Uh, but you just, and this is the kind of thing hackers do. I did a, an event on Thursday. You would have loved this event. It called Wired Families Safe Kids. It was at our kids' school. Uh-huh. And... Um, it ended up being the parents, it was, you know, they came to learn how to protect their kids online. But really, the truth is, they want to know, okay, what's the password keeper? What should I do? You know, how, how do I, what do I do when the bank calls? And they want, but they wanted to protect themselves. Everybody's dying for this information and everybody's terrified. And, yeah. and I guess when I hear stories like this, rightly so. Yeah. Get off Facebook. I told him, I think Facebook, I'm really starting to think Facebook is not a safe platform. Twitter, well, Twitter's it's- clearly not. It's it, these things are. I mean, this is this is a refrain our listeners are probably getting tired of. But I mean, they're so hard to do safely. Yeah, it's just and they don't so, seem to care. It's I mean, so difficult. They're not. It, it's difficult if you care, and they don't even care. Well, and you read the fine print of the agreement, and <sighs> they don't they're, have to. They're completely harmless. Right. You know, it, it, it's as the 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 Sands editor said, who I read before. You know, there's no there's no um, downside for the companies. Companies are not held responsible for flaws in their software. Yeah. Hey. You know, Microsoft began this with the original license agreement a long time ago that said you use this at your own risk. Right. And, you know, back then there wasn't much risk. Unfortunately, the risk has gone exponential and uh, the agreements haven't changed. It's still the fact that, you know, the, the onus is on us. Um, in Arata. I wanted to mention to our listeners, just because, you know, sci-fi is a topic that, that is near and dear to my heart, and, and you love sci-fi oh, as well, yeah. Leo. Oh, yeah. Um, I discovered just two days ago uh, ABC's series Flash Forward, and I'm, I'm enthralled. Oh, good. I, um, there was an ad uh, that I saw. Uh, briefly on TV, someone, someone, and I can't remember whom, it might have been Mark Thompson, somebody said, it's really good. But I hadn't started watching from the beginning, and it's like, oh, well, okay, too late. You know, because I was, you know, who knows how many weeks in I was. So 
I just thought, well, you know, maybe I'll get it on disc someday or just, you know, or I've got enough to watch. So I, I saw an ad that said, hey, the first, the, the, the series was in hiatus over the holidays, like from, you know, like it's been in hiatus, I guess, for a long time. Um, and it's getting ready to start up its second, the second half of the first season. And so the, the ad was for the first 10 episodes on DVD. So I said, okay, I, you know, I've heard this is really good. Th- that, that's enough. I just watched the first one and I was seriously hooked. <laughs> it's the reason for, for a sci-fi person, I, I recommend it, but it's not narrow in scope the way, um, the way, for example, Terminator was when it was on Fox or, uh, or Galactica. I mean, I think this will probably succeed in the market because there's a lot of human interest. It's got a lot of facets. Mostly, though, I think it owes its success to the fact that it's based on a, a novel by the same name uh, by Canadian sci-fi author Robert Sawyer. Um, and the the premise, this gives away nothing because everyone probably knows at least this much about the series if they haven't watched it, is that the entire world blacks blacks out for two minutes and 17 seconds. I think that's the number. Maybe it's 213 seconds. Anyway, (laughs) so so for a little over two minutes. And during this time, they see their life six months in the future. They see... Two and a half minutes or whatever that length of period is, they're like moved. The entire world's consciousness moves forward six months for that period of time. And then they wake up. So they know what's going to happen six months from now. Everybody. Yes. Not just one. See, I thought maybe it was one person. They all know. Everybody. Oh, wow. And so, first of all, there is a it's really not good if everyone loses consciousness for two minutes, yeah, like planes fall out of the sky, cars run into trucks. Yes, yeah. So we have mass devastation. I'd fall off my ball globally. Yeah. Now this happened at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, so they were asleep in China. So that was, you know, there was less devastation there, which causes the CIA to wonder if China caused it. It's like, okay, folks, you know, Jeez. they were asleep. <laughs> um, but what's really compelling is that. The, about is what is done with this concept. That concept is has so much room for interesting things. For example, the FBI sets up a website called Mosaic to solicit people sharing their visions, their flash forwards. Oh, interesting. And, Trying to and piece like, it all together. To piece it together. And, and like one FBI agent is... He in in his vision, he's with another FBI agent. Well, so in the first few minutes of the show, and I'm again, I'm this is not a spoiler. He like says, "Wait a minute, we can figure out if this is true." And he calls her across the planet, and she says, "I know why you're calling." <laughs> so, which meant that they had a shared vision. I mean, she had the same thing as anyway. So, so the point is, um, I recommend this highly. We're 10 weeks in. You have to see it in sequence. So uh, it resumes next week. Uh, this is um, this is March 11th, the date of this podcast. It, it 
the 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 series resumes next week. You can watch it on on the net on ABC. You can get you, know, you can watch all the episodes, all ten. You can get the DVDs. You know who who knows? You can probably find it. You know elsewhere it's on, it's on, on Netflix. I know on the net. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's just I I don't I can't of course vouch for what's going to happen. Um, this does feel to me like a a an arc. Which is fundamentally limited. So, I mean, they're going to run out of steam here at some point, or they're going to start stretching it out. I mean, there are all kinds of ways they could screw things up. But, you know, sort of like Galactica did. Galactica was fantastic for a couple of years, but it was a victim of its own success because they wanted to keep it going, but they had sort of they ran out of story. So, anyway, this is it's just, I discovered it two days ago. I watched the, <laughs> the entire 10 episodes. Oh, man. In the last two nights, because I, I mean, I couldn't go to sleep. It's just like, what's going to happen next? It was really fun what they do with it. So I just wanted to recommend it. And the original book is available on Audible. It is. And uh, a number of people have told me that the book, read the book first. Well, because um, I, I say did, the book is good. I, I would imagine the book is good. It looked to me, I uh, the, the book has a Wikipedia page. And the book's plot already diverges significantly good. from from the from the TV series. That's good because you could read the book and it won't affect your enjoyment of the series at all. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Anyway, I, I just I recommend this series. I'm. It is science fiction. It is really clever. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, this is good because somebody who was really a sci-fi author laid the down the foundation and, and i have to say though the writers who have just the the clever things that happen from this premise of the world sharing uh two and a half minutes of its future is really fun so great great science fiction i think is like that that you get you say okay here's the thing now what are the implications and the and you could tell the writer just goes really has fun saying well it would mean this and it would mean this and exploring it would mean this. the implications yeah Yes. Just one thing we're twisted, you know? What if yes. Germany won World War II or something like that? And you just, <laughs> just go with it. And it's really fun. I really enjoy it. Well, I, so, all right. Now, last... I haven't seen the show or the read the book. So now you've given me something, a new assignment. I'm excited. Well, I know how busy you are, Leo, but it's really good. I'm always I'm... looking for one. I want one show. I can't do more than one show. One show a week, I allow myself. Always looking for that show. And I don't have one right now. So. It's good, and it's not frustrating the way Twenty Four was. Or I just, Lost. I think I, I I haven't watched Lost, but people I hear just go crazy over Lost. And I think probably once it's all said and done, I've I've asked people, okay, is it is now that you because like look, Mark Thompson is a total Lostaholic, right? And I said, so is it worth getting it and watching it? It's like, oh yes, 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 yes. I guess it kind of lost its way in the middle, but then it kind of right. came back. Right. Toward the end. Oh, yeah, so, people are loving it. So, and this yeah. is the last season. So. Yes, yes, yes. I'm saving. There are certain things I'm saving for the nursing home. <laughs> That's one of them. <laughs> so I have an interesting Spinrite story, which involves Astaro, of all things, um, one of our sponsors. Oh, cool. Uh, from someone named Mark. He didn't share his last name. Um, and I'll keep his email address private because he didn't give me permission to share it. He said, Spinrite fixes Astaro firewall. And wife's payroll submission. He said, I enjoy listening to Security Now every week. Because of Security Now's Astaro ads, I built an Astaro gateway from my home using an old Pentium 2. Wow. I love it. So thanks also to Astaro for sponsoring the podcast and mm -hmm, offering mm -hmm. free home licenses. Mm -hmm. 
It just works. 24 by 7 by forever. And he said, Perens, see the attached graphic that shows the unit working from June through September when we had a long power outage that outlasted the battery backup. And an extended period, it was off in December when I unplugged it when I was on vacation. He says, he continues, it amazes me since it runs on a 900 megahertz <laughs> processor with a 20 gig hard drive. I think I've been using this hard drive for at least 15 years. Now, he must mean 20 meg hard drive. Maybe not 15 years. Yeah, I guess 20 gigs um, for, for at least 15 years. Until this week. One night this week, I got home. And my, my, my wife was very upset because, quote, the internet was down, unquote. <laughs> I hate, don't you hate when the internet goes down? I hate yeah. it when that happens. Yeah. She needed to submit her payroll form. Otherwise, she would not get paid for two weeks. This was a serious problem. So I started doing network troubleshooting, and I noticed the PCs in my home network had a 169.254.x.x IP address. Uh, well, self-assigned. Yes, that's Microsoft's block that, that is for it, it, what machines get if there's no DHCP server responding. They sort of assign themselves an address. He says, so he continues, that pointed immediately to a DHCP problem. The Astaro is the DHCP server. So next I checked on it. Strangely, it didn't respond to an administrative panel request from a web browser, nor did it respond to a ping to its fixed IP address either. I rebooted the Astaro gateway to see if it would fix things and noticed as it rebooted that the Astaro boot sequence said the hard drive was write protected. That's not good. Whenever I run into a hard drive problem, um, whether it's on my TiVo or my Windows systems, the first thing I do is run SpinWrite at level 2. After a short period running at level 2 in this instance, or at least much shorter than waiting for SpinWrite to maintain a 1 terabyte drive at level 4, he's saying that because it was only a 20 gig drive, I see a recovered sector on SpinWrite's display. I was expecting many, but by the, by the time the scan was completed. But it was time to try the drive since SpinWrite was done. I, reboot, I rebooted the PC, and the Astaro Gateway started running as it always had. Spinrite fixed the Astaro Gateway's drive, repaired the sector, just as I have seen it do with my other hard drives, and my wife was able to submit her payroll on time. Thanks, Steve, for an excellent product. Thanks to Leo for choosing good advertisers. Yes. I love products that just work without you even thinking about them, I like heard. Astaro. <laughs> And products that do exactly what you expect from them, like Spinrite. That's neat. I hardly need to do an Astaro ad now. Do I? <laughs> That's nice. That's really nice. And, and it's I'm with you. I, you know, when software works or when hardware works, when 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 something is well designed, it is such a nice feeling. And unfortunately, it does seem kind of rare. Yeah, <laughs> not getting better. Not getting better. Let me recommend for anybody who is looking for a unified threat management system, a UTM for your business, a Starro is great. You don't have to build your own beige PC like our emailer uh, did. You can do it uh, just by calling 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, and getting a free Astaro up-to-date installed, a demo unit installed in your uh, system. You'll have to buy it eventually, but you can really get a sense of how it's going to work for you. They do offer it free for non-commercial use. So you could try it at home if you want to, you know, see it before you bring it into the business. Um, but it's done on any beige box. Um, it, uh, it, is, it is just remarkable. Just go to astaro.com to learn more. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Three antiviruses, two for the web, 
one for, or two for email, one for the web. Uh, it's got, of course, complete filtering, content filtering, peer-to-peer filtering, instant message control, uh, all of the things. You could keep people off Facebook, absolutely. Uh, it would prevent, you know, a lot of the exploits we hear here would be prevented by a star effect, if not all of them. Also, by the way, some additional convenience features like VPN using SSL, IPsec, PPT, PP2P over, you know what I'm talking about, over <laughs> <laughs> all of those Ps. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, built-in... Uh, email encryption, decryption, and signing using S-MIME and, open, oh, Mime and OpenPGP. I can go on and on and on. This thing is just fantastic. Why don't you try it? Free. Get a demo unit in your place of business. Call 877-4ASTARO. Toll free in the U.S. 1-877-4ASTARO. Or outside the U.S. or if you're non-commercial, visit them online at astaro.com. Really a great product. It's nice to hear letters like that. It just, it just warms, warms me to the... Cockles of my heart. 877, the number four, Astara. We thank him support, for supporting our very first um, sponsor on this show. And in fact, I think our very first sponsor on the entire network. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. We're glad they're still with us. So, Steve, we're ready for more in our uh, Computer 101 series. Yeah, we've done an hour of security news and updates and stuff. So let's talk about uh, how computers work. This is the fourth installment. And... What people will eventually recognize is that I've, I've been very carefully and deliberately laying a foundation which um, I believe will, will end up in everyone really getting how computers function in, in a fundamental way. That is, you know, demystifying this really by showing it, that, in my opinion, there's not that much to it. I mean, you the the complexity comes from from refinement over time, not from the fundamentals. So, in the first installment, we talked we went to the very beginning and talked about resistors and transistors and how they could be connected to create simple logic gates and, and inverters and how for example, when you when you connect two inverters to each other in sort of a ring, that's a, an inherently stable device called a flip-flop, which forms a bit of a register, which is able to be loaded and, and, and remember um, a binary value, one or zero. And you can catenate a bunch of those in order to, to be able to store more complex, larger values. Um, we then, in the second installment, looked at machine language. The idea that machine language is nothing other than some form of storage which is addressable, um, where the address is stored in a program counter, which is just the the address of the current instruction we're executing, and that the instruction itself is a is a collection of bits. We we read a word out of memory, and the the individual bits have specific assignments. Like, for example, in the, in the instances I've been using, the top four might be the opcode, the operation code that says what this instruction instructs the computer to do. For example, add the contents of another location in memory specified by the rest of the bits in the instruction to an accumulator called the accumulator because it accumulates things. 
or or store the value of the accumulator into a location in memory or add or subtract, you know, whatever. So it's just that simple. And then in our third installment, we looked at indirection, which is a very powerful concept. We, we, we looked at the power of pointers because um, in the machine language, at the machine language level, we might sacrifice one of those bits, one of the precious bits in our machine language word to be an indirection flag. That is to say, if this bit is off, then the address specified by the rest of the bits is the address of the, 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 the data that we want to load or store or add. But if that indirection bit is a one, then that says that that location contains the address of the location to work from. That is, it's, it's indirect. It's not a direct access, an indirect access. And, in, and, and the other way of saying that is that that location is a pointer to the actual data. So two weeks ago, we looked at what that means to have, to have pointers. So this week, I want to take us, introduce the next major advance in the notion of how sort of the fundamentals of how computer works computers work at the hardware level with the with this the introduction of the concept of a stack which which uses this notion of indirection um, in order for for it to function i want to we need to to back up a little bit though and talk about multiple register machines um, and because that sort of factors into the, the value of the stack. The, so far, we've talked about a simple machine which had a single accumulator. And many of the early machines did because the, the point I was early making was that all of this hardware was so expensive in the beginning, transistors and resistors, and then the, the space they required, the power they consumed, the problem of interconnecting them all meant that, that, that the designers had to be extremely lean with the, with the design of their systems. So a register was, was a, a luxury to have. At the same time, it turns out that it's really convenient for a programmer to have more registers, that is, more than one accumulator. Now, remember, though, that we don't get these things for free. That is to say that bits in the instruction word, if we're going to have more than one register, bits have to be consumed in order to specify which register. So the advantage of having one was that you didn't need to specify which one because there was only one. So it was implied. There was this implication that if you're loading, well, you, there's only one place to load it into, and that's the accumulator. And if you're storing, there's only one place to store it from, which is the accumulator. So when machines began to have multiple accumulators, which was extremely handy to programmers, some bits of that instruction word needed to be 
needed to be dedicated to specifying which accumulator. So, for example, you um, one of them, the one of the early machines at the time uh, was the, the the family of machines from a company called Data General. There was an early competitor to DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, called the Nova Mini Computers. The Nova was also one that I programmed um, back in 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 the day when computers had control panels, you know, front panels with lights and switches, and it had four accumulators, four accumulator registers, which were designated AC0 through AC3. And so the instructions in the the Nova instruction set had two bits to specify which one of the four accumulators the instruction would act on. So there was load accumulator and store accumulator, but now you had four accumulators, not just one. So two bits in the instruction needed to be sort of taken away in order, to, well, need, needed to be dedicated to that purpose for specifying which accumulator you meant. Typically, that meant that you were you were taking bits from the from the rest of the word, like from the addressing range. So you were able then to address less memory with the instruction, but that that was made up for by the fact that having multiple registers was so convenient. So the the way the early machines handled subroutines was originally very awkward. The notion of a subroutine, um, probably our listeners are familiar with the concept, is that you would have some piece of code located somewhere in the computer which performs some useful function. For example, the original PDP-8 didn't have a multiply instruction. You could add and you could and and you could shift, but there was no multiply. So the multiplication process, which is very useful to a computer, you had to simulate a multiplication out of the much smaller instructions. So typically what a programmer would do, and in fact, I did this on on the code that I wrote for my little PDP-8 front panel uh, toys. I wrote a multiply because the, the... PDP-8 chip that I was using had no multiply built in, so but I needed one. So I created a multiply subroutine where it was a series of the available instructions which had the effect of performing multiplication. Well, if I was only doing that one place in my program, then the program would just it would execute into this multiplication operation and then continue. But say that I wanted to be able to multiply from various locations in the program. Well, were it not for having this this concept of a subroutine, I would have to duplicate that multiplication code everywhere I wanted to perform a multiplication. But the cool thing about this notion of a subroutine is you could have one instance of it in memory and you could jump to it from all the places in your program that you want where you want to perform a multiply. The problem is getting back. 
Because if you're going to jump to this routine from various locations in memory, different locations in your program, then once the routine, the multiply routine is done executing, it needs to know where to go back to. You can't hardwire that back to one location because you're jumping to it from different locations and you want to return to the instruction right after you have jumped to the subroutine so that you can continue executing where you were. Too bad there's no way to kind of store that place that we came from. Just <laughs> temporarily keep it somewhere. Well, what, ha- what the original designers of the PDP-8 did was they, they kind of came up with what we would now regard as a real kludge. They stored the location of the instruction after the the subroutine call in the first word of the subroutine hmm. and then started executing from the second word of the subroutine. That meant that the subroutine always sort of knew who had jumped to it, but it's where it had been jumped to from because that address was in its first word. So there's a perfect example of where indirection comes in. It would, when it was all through doing its work, or in this case, this multiply, it would jump indirectly through the first word of the subroutine. Since that first word contained the address that it had come from, that took it back to the place, the instruction underneath the one that had called it. So it was very, I mean, it was elegant from that standpoint. But it turns out that this approach has a problem. And that is, if if the subroutine were doing something more complicated, like calling other code somewhere else, what if that code needed a multiply? Well, then the the other code would call the multiply and its return address it its lo, the, the location from which it called would overwrite the the first call of the multiply in other words that it, well th- the way to say this is that this was not recursive you you could oh. not you could not nest these calls the yeah, first, because you'd overwrite the, the first call when you did the second call. Exactly. You could never get back to the beginning. Exactly. So programmers, if they knew that their code needed to be recursive, that is, if there was a chance that that the work they were doing might be called, the work they were doing might cause, through through any means, might cause them to be executed again before they returned, they would have to go to all kinds of, you know, extra work. For example, save that return address at the beginning of the subroutine somewhere else so that if they got called again, it would, it, it would be safe against replacement. Well, what eventually was developed is, this, is a brilliant concept called a stack. A stack is a complete abstraction. That is, it, it's, we can think of it 
and and people have in describing how it worked have have talked about for example a stack of plates in a in a cafeteria um there are there's a like a, a there there's a buffering acronym that people may have heard last in first out or first in first out or first in last out or <laughs> various combinations of that what what it really is the way to think of it in concrete terms is there's a register called the stack pointer so remember we have the program counter which is a register that points to the current instruction that we're executing imagine now that this computer has another register called a stack pointer which is at the beginning of the program say that it just points at the very end of memory like way way up high at the at the end of the computer's memory where nothing is going on and so essentially the the we'll we'll call that all ones you know 1111111111 is the is the highest value of the computer's um storage so that value is put into this this stack pointer register now an instruction is uh, a few instructions are used. For example, um, in 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 common terminology, they would be called push and pop, where you the 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 con, the conceptual notion is you push something onto the stack, or you pop something from the stack. What what pushing on the stack does is it it stores. It stores the value of what you're pushing in the location pointed to by the stack pointer and then subtracts one from the stack pointer. So again, we're using this powerful concept of indirection so that the the stack pointer, it's called a stack pointer because it's pointing at a location in memory. So say that we had something in an accumulator that we just needed to put somewhere safe for a while. We do what's called pushing it on the stack, which merely says we, we ask the, the computer's hardware, the processor hardware, to sort of deal with it. Here, take this. And, like and what that. it... Deal with it. <laughs> deal with it. Exactly. Um, so what the idea is, with the stack pointer, which is pointing at the end of memory... At, in, in the beginning, we say, here, store this on the stack, push this on the stack. So the, that, that value is copied to where the stack pointer is pointing at the very last word of memory. And then the stack pointer is decremented by one. Well, that decrementing by one is this, is this concept, the concept of pushing it on the stack. Because notice if I say, oh, now deal with this. Something new has come along. Deal with this. So we, we, again, we push this new thing on the stack, same stack, but this time the stack pointer that was decremented by one last time, well, it's now pointing at the second to the last word of memory. So we store this second thing that came along in the second to the last word of memory and so on. So we're able to say, deal with it, deal with it, deal with it. And we don't really care where these things are being stored. Because that housekeeping is being done by the hardware. Eventually, though, we say, 
hey, I need that back. And so that's called popping the value from the stack. Popping the value does the reverse. It it copies the the contents of where the stack pointer is pointing back to wherever we're telling it to go. Like we want to load that. We want to, if we're popping the stack into a register, it copies where the stack pointer is pointing back to um, our register. Well, I, I, I stepped a little bit on this. We, I'm sorry, we, since we store something in order to push the stack, we store something and then increment the pointer. If we pop the stack, we first decrement the pointer. So it's now pointing at the at the top of the stack. And then we copy where that is pointing back to our register. That sequence is important because it's got to be the exact reverse to pop as what we do when we push. But the advantage is that, that again, we... We told the computer to accept some data in a certain sequence of pushes. When we tell it we want that data back through a series of pops, it returns them in reverse order because we're, we're the, the, the stack is being popped and the pointer is incrementing back towards the what's called the bottom, um, you know, of the back back toward the um, the bottom of the stack back to the beginning. So we get this data in reverse sequence. So, okay, there's sort of the, the, the fundamentals. Well, now look at this in terms of subroutines because if the computer is set up, as all computers today are, to store that return address on the stack, then this problem of recursion completely goes away. If we, if our jump to subroutine instruction, instead of storing the address of the instruction which follows it in, in as the PDP-8 did at the beginning of the subroutine, it simply pushes it on the stack. That's the phrase, pushes it on the stack. Then we don't have to worry about it. The the return address has been stacked, as again is, is the, the way it's referred to. We execute the subroutine, and the, the last instruction of the subroutine is called a return, a, a return from subroutine instruction. And it, it does the reverse of essentially of this jump to subroutine. It, it removes that t- the last thing that was put on the stack and uses that as the address to return to. So the value of this, the reason this is recursive is that if this subroutine called some other subroutine or executed some other code, which, which came back and called the original subroutine, that is, it, it, it would stack that address also then now two return addresses are on the stack, one for each time the subroutine was called. And in fact, other subroutines could be called in any order, the only requirement being that they are returned from in the reverse order that they're called, which 
is normally the way the uh, a, a programmer would would design things. You always you finish up what you're doing and then you return from the subroutine. So the beauty of this is that the series of return instructions properly remove the addresses from the stack in the reverse order that they were stored, which is exactly what you want in order to sort of unwind yourself and get back to where you came from. So so that technology is now intrinsic to the design of our computers. One of the other things that this, this stack is useful for is, is saving the state of the computer. Say that you, that this multiply subroutine needs to um, use the registers which were probably being used by the person that called the subroutine. Well, it can't mess them up. It needs to it needs need, needs to leave them alone. So one of the things that that this multiply subroutine could do is save those registers which it will be altering, but which it wants to be able to restore on the stack. So at the beginning of the subroutine, it'll say push register zero, push register one, push register two, which stores their contents on the stack. The subroutine doesn't care where the stack is, what the stack pointer is currently pointing to. It just sort of said, deal with it to the computer. Then once it's then it's able to use those registers any way it wants to as as scratch pads, you know, for its own work. And once it's done, it needs to put things back the way they were so that the routine which called the subroutine doesn't have things messed up. So it says pop register two, pop register one, pop register zero. And remember, in the reverse order that it that it that it pushed them. And so successively, the values that were stored are restored into these registers. Then it says return from the subroutine and the stack will be pointing at that point at the proper return address so long as the same number of registers were popped as were pushed. Because again, you need to keep these things balanced, which is some of the problems programmers get into if they're if they're working at a low level and are not careful. You do have to be careful because with this power comes, not surprisingly, responsibility. A compiler will do it automatically. It's only if you're managing the stack yourself. Well, yes, except that many of the security flaws mm. that we have talked about are a consequence of stack overflow. Right. We, we've talked about that often. So it is possible in a, in a powerful language like C to, to allocate buffers. One of the other uses of the stack, and this is where this, this directly impinges on security. Notice that we've been talking about pushing and popping things. Well, say that a, a, a subroutine needed some, like a buffer. It needed 256 bytes of, of buffer space for its own purposes, just sort of like to use for a while while it's doing stuff. One of the ways a programmer could get buffer space is by manually subtracting a, a like 
256 bytes from the stack pointer. So look what that does. Essentially, it's it's almost like it's like it, it, if you had said push 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 256 times, you would have moved the stack pointer down in memory, coming down from the top, um, and and you end up with this block of memory. So a programmer is able to say is able to subtract a value from the stack pointer and use that area which is above the stack pointer as their own scratch pad because if other things for example if this subroutine then pushed other values or called other subroutines those would all be down lower in the stack so the act of moving the stack pointer down creates a buffer sort of it's it's a nice very fast and efficient way of allocating some memory that can be used the problem is look what happens if you were to ever write too much data in that buffer well that would that would overwrite values on the stack which which were above the buffer that you allocated so that if you then popped values pop the, the like the register values off the stack and even more significantly if you did a subroutine return remember that the subroutine returns address is stored on the stack so if a bad guy were able to cause a buffer overrun and and write over any of the stack they could put their own return address of the malicious code into the computer and it would jump there so that instead of returning where it was supposed to go from the subroutine it would go into the malware and that's exactly how um, much of this malware gains control over the system just like that by taking advantage of the stack powerful as it is it does need to be treated with extreme care because um, it controls the execution path of the processor if we turn, that's one of the reasons to turn on data execution prevention, right? Because it can't, if you can't execute code in the data area, doesn't that prevent that kind of attack? Yes, exactly. Um, one of the... Is the stack the, considered, the stack's considered data area. The, yeah. Now, it, it is the case that some programs will put, ex, will deliberately put executable code on the stack, or they will allocate other data areas and for example load load some of themselves like like they they've they they may be a modular program where only part of the program is loaded in memory at a time and so at some point it says oh i want i need to go get another chunk of myself so they'll load themselves another piece of themselves off the hard drive into memory which technically is data memory and then execute that there's nothing preventing that Except it's 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 regarded as poor programming to to do that, and so it's the kind of thing that data execution prevention would flag as as an exception, which is why some benign software will not run with DEP enabled because it'll cause that problem. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. And, and some benign software wants to use the stack as a code area because it gives them some flexibility. Exactly. It's a kind of programmer's trick. 
Exactly. Push, push code on the very, stack. Very, very handy and very efficient. And very bad. <laughs> Stop doing it. <laughs> well, now, uh, that's uh, stacks and registers. Do you want to get to get into recursion today, too? Um, we got I have, time. I have one last thing to say. Okay, hold on then. Hold that thought. And, uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. But before we do, I do want to mention uh, one more sponsor, and that's with the folks at Carbonite, who created something just for our audience called Carbonite Pro. We are, as far as I know, the only people advertising this. This is a brand new product from Carbonite. You see, Carbonite's that backup, that online backup service we've talked about before. Very secure, uses AES 256-bit encryption. You control the keys. Uses 128-bit SSL after AES encryption to transmit. That's kind of belt and suspenders, but that's just how they like it. Uh, it, of course, uh, gives you the chance to restore a file from almost anywhere, as long as you can get online, even your iPhone. There's a Carbonite client for the iPhone. But anywhere you can get online, you can look at Carbonite, look at your data stores, get your files. It's automatic backup, uh, off-site. And what happened was Carbonite found out that a lot of people using Carbonite were businesses. It's a consumer product, what per computer product. But the businesses found it so useful, so handy to have automatic backup that they started in steps. Several hundred thousand Carbonite customers were small businesses. So Carbonite has created a product just for you, the small business, called Carbonite Pro. The same great, very secure, very effective, automatic, off-site backup. But with a console that allows you to control multiple seats, uh, a much reduced price, you know, kind of volume pricing for it. Um, it's just a great solution for the business. We've installed it immediately, of course. CarbonitePro.com. You could try it right now. 30 days free. I do recommend the free trial. As always, you know, we encourage our sponsors to do that because, well, we know you're smart. We know if it, if it fits the need, if you try it and it fills the need, then you will buy it. And if it doesn't fill the need, we don't want to sell it to you. It's that simple. CarbonitePro.com. Give it a 30-day trial. See how it works in your business. I love the couple of things I really like. The ability for the user to do a restore, if you give them permission, that's nice because, you know, the truth is it's, it's, it's embarrassing that walk down the, down the hall to the uh, IT department to say, um, I deleted that spreadsheet I'm supposed to have for today. And uh, can you restore that? <laughs> That's embarrassing. Carbonite Pro lets the user do it themselves. It has lots of nice features as the IT department, though you control it. Try it. 30 days free. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E. CarbonitePro.com. Carbonite's a great company run by great people. We were Talking about David Friend, the guy who started it, and former founder of the ARP synthesizer company. Just a neat guy. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really proud to be associated with him. CarbonitePro.com. So I guess in a way we talked about recursion because the, the recursion required the stack. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a little self-conscious about having made everyone's eyes cross here. No, that was stuff. great. Um, but it's, it's a crucial concept because... Um, what we're going to do in two weeks is discuss how computers are able to do everything at once. That is one thing we've never <laughs> talked about. Slicing. And it's crucial yeah. is interrupts. Yeah. This notion of interrupts and, and the, the, the way that, that sounds can play, the mouse can move, the pointer can move. Um, the hard drive is 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 reading and writing. I mean, there's there's so much happening at once, and this this concept of of being able to interrupt code, which we're going to cover in two weeks, absolutely requires so, the stack 
in order for for no matter what's going on to to have its state saved mm. that is the the you know we we talked about one instance for example where this subroutine the my in my example this multiply needed to use some of the registers that there there you know there aren't an infinite number of registers so it if it was going to be modifying them it needed to be able to save and restore them well so does a system where anything could happen at any time so i i, I wanted to to explain both from a security standpoint but also sort of from this this fundamental architecture how vital this concept of a stack is how cool it is that you're able just to say stack this stack this stack this stack this and not have any specific concern with where exactly it's been stored one of the reasons this is so efficient remember we talked about the notion of an a register being implicit in an instruction well we're not having to specify the stack pointer because that's implied by the push and pop instructions they you know they know how to do the work we just sort of say we say to, to the computer take the data i don't care where you put it just as long as you can give it back to me when i tell you that i want it and the key is that it's it's this notion of it being in the we get it in the reverse direction that we gave it allows all of this power and and essentially allows this recursion because because as long as we sort of unwind ourselves in the in the reverse direction that we wound up we end up right back where we're supposed to be so it works that's very cool love it i love uh, talking about the deep roots of computer science uh, from a guy who was there at the beginning frankly <laughs> well there <laughs> are close. there are just a couple more key concepts and and we will 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 have really pretty much everything we need in order to understand where we are today because i want to quickly um probably in in the episode after we talk about interrupts talk about today's microprocessors the whole cisc versus risk controversy the issue of how many registers is enough um how intel got itself tangled up as power continue to be consumed with the design of its processors and and the insane things that designers have done in order to squeeze every last bit of processing power out of these chips now that people are now that our listeners have a sense for exactly how these things run the, the, the there there's enough understanding to understand very cool technology like out of order execution and superscalar and pipelining and 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 the stuff that we've all got in today's processors, um, not just the way PDP8s used to work. Thank well, thank you, Steve. It's uh, always fascinating, and we'll get more into the details of the nitty gritty. Now, next week, though, we answer your questions. It's our Q and A episode, so if you've got a question, you can go to GRC about this or anything in uh, the security world. Go to grc.com slash feedback, and that's where you can ask questions of Steve, and we'll pick 10 or so for next week. He will. Uh, by the way, while you're at grc.com, don't forget to check out Spinrite, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. A must-have. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite. He also has a lot of good free stuff there. Um, shoot the messenger, decombobulator, Wismo, shields up. 
I could go on and on. GRC.com, and you will find 64 kilobit and 16 kilobit versions of this file, the podcast that you're listening to there, as well as the show notes and uh, and transcripts too. It's all at GRC.com. Steve, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.